Good morning, friends. Uh, today's message is entitled, The Most Interesting Man. It comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. This is a story about three people, Jesus, the centurion, and his slave, and I hope that you take time to read that story. But we know the least about the slave. We know he must have been a young man, possibly a teenager. Luke says he was sick to the point of death. Matthew's version, you can read that in chapter 8, adds that he was paralyzed and in great pain. We never see him. Jesus never meets him. The centurion never mentions his name, and we don't know the cause of his illness or how long he'd been sick. I kind of picture this nameless slave lying motionless on a couch, his breath labored, his face bathed in sweat, his pulse raising, the only sound an occasional moan. Death slowly but surely tightens his grip with every hour. It's evident to all who see him that only a miracle could save him now. And that is why the centurion came to Jesus. He was looking for a miracle. We know much more about the centurion. He lived in Capernaum, a small fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. As the name implies, the centurion was the captain of 100 soldiers. Six centuries of soldiers equaled one cohort of 600 men. Ten cohorts of 600 men equaled one Roman legion of 6,000 soldiers. So chosen for their leadership abilities, centurions were the backbone of the Roman army. They were always Gentiles. The New Testament uses the word centurion 21 times, always in a positive light, the most famous being when the centurion who watched Jesus die exclaimed, Surely this man was the Son of God. But that is the background. We come to the central fact. It's this. The centurion had a slave whom he highly regarded. Now, this was rare indeed. In the Roman Empire, slaves had no rights. They could be mistreated and even put to death. One ancient writer commented that, quote, when your animals are old, you throw them out to die. You do the same with your slaves, end of quote. So this is the first unusual thing about the story, that a Roman centurion would care so much about his slave. We see the second unusual thing in the centurion's response. He sent some Jewish elders. In verse 2 of our text, it says the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. Well, it's unusual that he didn't go himself. It's unusual that he asked the Jews to go in his place. And it's unusual that they would go. You see, relations between the Romans and the Jews were never very good. The Romans had no use for the Jews and their barbarous superstition, and the Jews hated their Roman overlords and their their occupying army, which the centurion represented. In the normal course of things, the Romans and Jews interacted as little as possible. But this man was different. When the elders speak to Jesus, they stress the centurion's good qualities. They say in verses 4 and 5, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So he loves the nation of Israel, and they said, and he proved it by building a church, a synagogue in Capernaum. Now, if you ever have a chance to visit Capernaum, your tour guide will take you to the remains of a synagogue that goes back to the 2nd century A.D. Underneath those ruins, you can see the foundation stones of an even earlier synagogue that many believe is the very synagogue the centurion built. And yes, it was no small thing to do what he did. I mean, think, what if a man would say, I'm going to build a church for you? In today's dollars, that might mean, you know, millions of dollars. And even for a very modest structure, it might even cost more. 
Now, if a rich man did that, we would treat him like a hero. That's why the Jewish leaders said, if anyone deserves your help, he does. Well, this kind of rounds out the picture of the centurion. He was kind-hearted, wealthy, generous, and public-spirited. He was the kind of man you would want for a friend. The Bible says that the Jews begged Jesus to go because the time was short and the servant was dying. So Jesus went with them to the house of a Gentile to heal the servant of a Roman soldier. Now, he didn't have to go. He didn't owe it to the man. And worthiness had nothing to do with it. And so that's the third unusual thing. Jesus was willing to go. He never made it to the centurion's home because the centurion wouldn't let him come. And that's the fourth unusual thing. And the reason giving ought to capture our attention. The centurion said he wasn't worthy of Jesus to visit his home. In verses 6 and 7, it says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Now the Jews who loved him said, This man is worthy. But the centurion said, I am not worthy. Now we see wrapped up in these verses some great traits of this man. One of them is humility, a true estimate of oneself. And then we see faith. Lord, just say the word and my servant will be healed. We see the reason for such faith back in verse 8. He says, For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, Go, and he goes, and that one, Come, and he comes. I say to my servant, Do this, and he does it. The centurion speaks exactly the way a military man would speak. A soldier's way of thinking shines through his uniform, they say. Now, when I give a command, he said, I expect instant obedience. I don't have to be personally present for my soldiers to obey. You have unlimited power, Jesus. Just say the word and the disease will disappear. Well, the centurion saw Jesus for what he was, and his great faith came from that vision. And this is absolutely amazing faith, and it is astounding that he should have figured it out. He argues from personal experience because he knew all about being in command and giving orders that must be obeyed. Lord, you have the power over disease as I have power over my men. He argues from what he knows about himself to what he knows about Jesus. If my authority produces incident obedience, how much more will yours produce? I mean, how much did this centurion know about Jesus? Well, I'm kind of guessing not much. I'm, I'm sure he knew about his background and something about his teaching. He certainly knew that Jesus worked great miracles. But did he know he was talking to the creator of the universe? Possibly not, but he did know that Jesus was more than a man, more than a carpenter, more than a good teacher. He saw Jesus for what he was, and his great faith came from that vision. Because he saw Jesus as absolutely authoritative, he considered Jesus' word as absolutely authoritative. He knew that Jesus didn't have to be personally present for his servant to be healed. And that leads us to the fifth unusual thing. Jesus was flat out amazed by this man's faith. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such faith even in Israel. Now, only twice in the Gospels was Jesus said to be amazed. In this story, he's amazed because of this man's belief. But in Mark 6, verse 6, we read that in Nazareth, he was amazed because of their unbelief. The point is, this man is a Roman centurion, not a Jewish leader, yet he has faith. It pops up where you least expect it. This is faith outside Israel that amazed Jesus. Now, we might flip it over and ask, why was faith so rare in Israel? 
After all, they had the law and the prophets, the centuries of tradition, the knowledge of God, the history stretching back to Abraham. They'd received the promises of God. They had every advantage the centurion didn't have, yet he had faith, and they didn't. Well, part of it was the focus on certain signs they expected to see, and when they didn't see those signs, they wrote Jesus off. Their abundance of knowledge actually made them overcautious when it came to the Son of God. I mean, they probably told people, don't get carried away with this guy. I mean, he could just be a faker. Well, the story ends in verse 10 with the final unusual thing. Jesus healed the centurion slave without a word. He did something that went beyond what the man suggested. I mean, Jesus didn't go. He didn't touch him. He didn't offer a public prayer. He didn't do anything outwardly. He just healed him, period. It's a pure grade A miracle. Now, how did he do it? I don't know, but I know why he did it. He did it to demonstrate beyond all question that he is the Son of God with all authority given to him over sickness, disease, and death. Well, let's wrap up by focusing on the key point that Jesus was amazed by this man's faith. Let me ask you this question. What does it take to amaze Jesus? Well, I think it's faith, audacious faith, unexpected faith, unashamed faith. That's what impresses Jesus. And I'm glad about that because if it took money or education or position or power or connections, then we'd all be disqualified. And if it took being super religious, we'd never make it either. It's faith that impresses our Lord. And if it is, then we need to know how faith works. We can take away two vital facts from this story. Vital fact number one is this. Faith works when we come to God with a sense of our own unworthiness. As long as we think we deserve a hearing, our prayers will go unanswered because God isn't impressed by the things that impress us. God does not play by our rules. So many times we walk as if we're saved by faith, but we act as if we're saved by works. Down in our hearts we believe if I was a better person, God would answer my prayers. So we try and try and keep on trying. We work hard. We go to church and obey the rules. We act nice. We try to be good, and we hope that that will make a difference with God. But let us get into a crisis, and suddenly we start praying like a Christian. When life crashes in around us, when we are backed into a corner, we see clearly what we in secret knew all along, that our good deeds are nothing but filthy rags in his sight. Even in our best moments, um, they're colored with self-interest and pride and ego and mixed motives. When our loved ones are in trouble, then we realize that it's not our daily quiet time that will pull them through. It's God and God alone. That's why it's a good thing to be backed into a corner now and then. Desperate situations cause us to quit talking about how wonderful we are and simply cry, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. There is no prayer more basic than that. The first step of salvation, the one that really matters and can never be skipped, is to understand that you desperately need saving, and there is nothing, absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself. As long as we think we have a claim on God, we either will not come to him, or if we do, we will always secretly think that we weren't really that bad off in the first place. It's good for us to be completely humbled before the Lord, because then we come as beggars before him, pride stripped, arrogance gone, knowing that were it not for grace, we could not come at all. But when we come before the Lord crying out for mercy, that's when we discover the life-changing power of Jesus. Here's vital fact number two. 
Faith works when our confidence in the Lord is so strong that we're willing to risk embarrassment and failure. That, I think, is why the Pharisees, who seem to have plenty of religion, never really had much faith. It was too dangerous, too risky. They had to play it safe. They could not afford to be embarrassed because, after all, they had an image to uphold. That's why the centurion got his answer. He didn't know very much, but what he knew he was willing to take a chance on. I mean, think about the risk he took. What if Jesus wouldn't come? What if he tried to cure the servant but failed? What if Jesus rebuked him for not being Jewish? I mean, what if, what if, what if, what if? We could go on and on. But see, it's a wonderful thing to be so deep, to be in so deep, that you need a miracle to get out because that's when you're most likely to receive one. Someone has said that faith is belief plus unbelief and acting on the belief part. So many of us never get around to acting on the belief part. You can know a lot and believe a little. That would be the Pharisees. You can know a little and believe a lot. That would be the centurion. Better to believe a lot based on a little knowledge than to know a lot and believe almost nothing. A few days ago, I happened across this fascinating question. Do my prayers bore God? Now, immediately, the mind wants to argue with that question. I mean, how can God ever be bored with the prayers of his children? But I don't think that's what the question was probing. The question challenges us to ask, what in my life can only be explained by God? Or what am I asking for that only God can answer? Sometimes our prayers are tame and plain vanilla because we are afraid to put God on the spot by asking him for something outrageously huge like the healing of a desperately ill servant. That was not a boring request, and it received an amazing, immediate, miraculous answer. So here is warning and encouragement mixed together. The warning is this, the warning to those who have great knowledge, but practically believe very little. There's encouragement to those who know very little about the Bible or the Christian faith, and yet trust God completely based on what they know. See, we end where we began, with the observation that to believe, we must suspend disbelief. As long as we limit God to what we think he can do, he will never, we will never see anything great because our faith remains so small. But once we are willing to suspend our disbelief and renounce our skepticism, then and only then do we become candidates for a miracle. The life of faith, you see, is inherently a life of risk. It's not for the timid souls who want to play it safe all the time. John Calvin put it this way, quote, How graciously Christ pours out his grace when he finds the vessel of faith open. End of quote. Are we open to receive all that God has for us? <clears throat> faith's power does not rest in knowledge, religion, or good works. It's much simpler than that. Faith is not trying harder or being nice. Faith works when we stop playing it safe, when we throw away our little cup, and when we, with uncertain steps, take the risk and come running to Jesus with a bucket, and he fills it to the top every time. But you'll never know until you come running. God bless, friends. Talk to you next week.